Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen and Friends. If Watch With Jen is the studio track, this is the acoustic version. Today's guest is David Handler. As a writer, the talented David Handler has just about done it all. A graduate of the Columbia School of Journalism, who started out as a New York cultural correspondent, Handler moved up the ranks, working as a Broadway, TV, and film critic before the California native made his way to Hollywood as a screenwriter. Part of the original writer's room that created the charming 80s sitcom Kate and Alley, Handler worked in the industry for years before, having had success in his earliest works, decided to devote himself to writing novels full-time. The author of over two dozen crime books, including the Berger Mitri novels and his incredibly popular Stuart Hogue mysteries, David's work has received an Edgar, an American Mystery Award, and been a finalist for an Anthony. A knowledgeable classic movie lover whose tweets about film first caught my eye before I'd even read his entertaining work. I'm thrilled to have him as a guest on Watch with Jen. David, how are you doing and how are you adapting to pandemic life? I know we talked a little. (laughs) Actually, I've been uh, basically training for this for the last 35 years. I mean, I've been home sheltering uh, for as long as I can remember. I mean, I've been working at home by myself, uh, you know, and uh, used to kind of not socializing during the week because um, if you if you write a book a year, you really need to kind of uh, save your energy and, and yeah. schedule and, and um, get your rest and keep your st- the hardest thing. A lot of people don't realize it. In fact, they don't even believe me when I tell them, but it takes a tremendous amount of stamina to write a book. Um, oh, yeah. In addition to the, you know, inspiration and and, and everything else, it's just it, it really takes a lot out of you physically um, and emotionally. Um, and um, you really have to I mean, I really have to work hard at staying in shape. And I take like, you know, a lot of yoga classes. I walk, you know, a couple of miles uh, on the beach every day. Um, and I try to get a lot of sleep and, and you know eat well and all that stuff because um it it really um beats you up it's really hard work um Mm -hmm. when i worked in uh tv you know you were in a group and you would be working uh with you know at the table uh pounding out a script with you know anywhere from four to six other writers Plus, you know, maybe there'd be some network people there or producers or whatever. And the, the main thing about working, you know, in, in TV and in, also in films is that there's always another writer in the room to finish mm-hmm. a thought. Like if you have a, an idea or something for a line of dialogue, there's always somebody else to throw out something. And you don't actually have to do everything yourself. There's also people who designed the wardrobe and designed the sets and everybody involved has a specialty that they're very good at. The, there's, there's music to set a mood. Um, mm-hmm. There's performers, professional actors to deliver the dialogue. When you write a book, basically it's a solo performance. Okay. You're, yep. <laughs> you're, you are uh, 
basically writing, producing, directing, and starring in your own film, except it's just you, you know. And mm-hmm. um, the last couple, I'm now editing, um, getting, I just been working on the pop-ups on the edits from, from my editor, and it's, it's like you're really um, performing the book, you know, you're playing all the roles yourself. If, if yeah. you're the kind of writer like I am, I'm really... I, I really like to dig into the characters and get to know them and, and put, I'm kind of like a method actor. I did a lot of improv when I was in college and, um, <laughs> and I, I, I like to put some of myself in every character. Uh, and um, so you really do really feel like um, exhausted and kind of spent. Um, I just turned the book in a few weeks ago and I was realizing that, you know, I have a June deadline. Thank goodness I signed mm-hmm. a contract. I have a June deadline for next year. And um, so I'm going to have to start thinking about gearing myself up to write another one, and um, which I'm looking forward to because when you get started on book, you, you get to disappear into a, your own fantasy world and you don't have to think about any of the horrible things that are going on in our real world. True. Uh, yeah. Uh, people, you know, uh, that, who I've I'm friends with on Facebook and Twitter. They're like, you know, all I do is sit in my apartment and, and you know, watch TV or read or, or watch movies. And it's like, you know, this is great. I, you know, I'm gone from like 6 a.m. until noon. I'm living in in 1993 and you know, <laughs> my own world. And and, um, you know, I just shut out, you know, the real world. So for me, it's like a great escape, you know. Um, yeah. But, you know. The hardest thing is that it's just really everyone is really just really sad. Everyone is frightened and sad mm-hmm. and and um, it's just a really. I mean, I went through. Uh, I was in high school during you know the t- tumultuous times of like 1968 with the riots, mm-hmm. and the assassinations, and um, uh, anti-war movement. Uh, you know, I was a you know anti-Vietnam got you know hippie and all that and and it seemed like the country was completely falling apart you know at the seams and um um this is so much worse that it yeah can't even begin to tell you i can't even put it into words how much more frightening this is um yeah because it's both political and it's the pandemic you know um it's a perfect storm of awfulness basically it is. Yeah. yeah, I was talking to my parents who were definitely in high school in 68, and they were kind of saying the same thing. Like, you know, as horrible as it was, they still didn't doubt that, you know, the president would probably have done the right thing with the right guidance back then. Right. Like, the center, but today, the, the yeah. Professional grownups in charge. Yes. And, and <laughs> the center would hold. And now you have uh, this kind of horrible yeah. feeling in your gut that there is no center anymore so i know it's a little sure. it's it's a little scary but um we have to live live you know every day like you know uh any other day and enjoy ourselves enjoy our work enjoy our friends Definitely. and loved ones and and what we love to do and try to as hard as it is try to tune it out but um mm-hmm. when i was finishing my book i i would go out to the driveway and get my copy of the New York times at like, you know, five 30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
I noticed at like two in the afternoon, it was still sitting on the dining table, you know, crisp, untouched. I just was avoiding the news completely. Um, yeah. There's a, I have a little, little TV in the kitchen for when I'm making dinner. And um, I mostly have it there for uh, watching baseball games and um, watching the news. And there's no baseball and I can't stand to watch the news. And I was re- realizing the other day, that that TV has not been on for like four months. Yeah. Very sad commentary. I know. Uh, it's, yeah. And it's the only hard. thing you watch on TV is, is Turner Classics or, yep. or Netflix, you know. Um, uh, we, we've been binging on, uh, we just binged our third time Schitt's Creek and, um, we just finished binging the first five seasons of uh, Cheers, which was a really, really oh, fun sitcom yes. back in the 80s. I had loved it. Since it was first on. So we watched the Shelley Long seasons. And oh, now, yeah, yeah. Now we're, uh, we've moved on to um, West Wing, or we're in season one of West Wing, which is, uh, there's something comforting about, again, Really and committed people who know know what they're doing. They don't really know what they're doing, but at least we have faith that they care and that they're smart and uh, yeah. things will turn out okay. You know? Yeah, grown-ups in the room. Well, I know you're editing your newest Hoagie Mystery. Is it the 12th one in the series? Uh, yes. It yeah. is, wow. And all there. Yeah, I did eight way back when I was first starting out um the first book uh, the man who died laughing was my second book and um my first book was a coming of age novel which took me 10 years uh to get published i was writing it you know from the time i was first starting out as a reporter you know straight through my newspaper career straight wow. you know working on kate nally i mean i was always working on that book um and it was like 800 pages long, and it, um, <laughs> it's, it's actually now only about 200 pages. <laughs> when it was okay. published, I ended up throwing. I had envisioned it as this grand three three part thing, and and everybody loved the first part, and everyone hated the second two parts. So kind oh, no. <laughs> I saw the light after a few years, and I threw out you know 600 pages of material. Uh, and I, I strengthened the uh, and rewrote the first section, and, and that became my first novel um, about growing up in L.A. in the 60s. And then my second novel, you know, was, was I had been reading more and more murder mysteries because I lived uh, on the Upper West Side on West 87th Street, about mm-hmm. half a block down from uh, a really famous mystery bookshop called Murder, Inc., and I would stop there on my way home from the subway and, and kind of poke around and find all these old hardwell crime writers from the 30s. You know, I had already read Raymond Chandler and, you know, yeah. Anne, but I started poking around and finding like Jeffrey Holmes, who, who wrote Build My Gallows High, which was made into Out of the Past, you know, you know one mm-hmm. of the landmark, the landmark film noirs, which I, I first saw on late night television when I was in high school and I went, I don't believe this, you know, <laughs> not believe how good this movie is. How is it possible? I've never heard of it. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I was really fortunate growing up in LA because, um, we had like four locally owned stations that showed late movies all night long. And so I was just, I was a night owl and, and I, I would just watch movies all night long. 
and and um, got you know a tremendous education of um, my favorite was anything anything Warner Brothers with Cagney or Bogart or or Joan Blondell or or, or Betty Davis or anything like that yeah. and. Also living in L.A., um, we, it was a company town, so there were there were like revival houses all over the place. It was interesting, like um, being in high school at that time, um, 68 was a really 67, 68, right around there was a really, really awkward time in Hollywood for movies because the, the studio system was collapsing. Shifting. Yeah, <laughs> um, there was a generation gap in, in Hollywood the same way there was in the music business. Um, you know, yeah. we were listening to rock and roll. And meanwhile, the theaters were showing, um, you know, these movies starring, you know, stars from the 40s. Good act. I mean, I'm not to put anybody, any of these people down, people like Kirk Douglas and, and, and Charlton Heston and Burt Lancaster, but they were wearing toupees and they were old, you know, they were mm-hmm. like in their fifties or whatever. And that was like, not for us, you know, that, that it was, they were not making movies for us. The only movies they made in the sixties for us were beach blanket movies. And yeah. <laughs> Elvis movies. I mean, it was all just sort of second rate crap. And so my friends and I, what we used to do on the weekends was, you know, scour the paper and, um, we, we, First discovered, I, I say that in quotes, we first discovered um, the great comedies because uh, any night of the week you could go see W.C. Fields, you could go see uh, Laurel and Hardy, the Marx Brothers, Buster Keaton, Charlie wow. Sheen. Um, all that was very, very popular then, um, the comedies. That was sort of the first wave. Um, and I also lived right near UCLA and the UCLA Film School had an auditorium and you could sneak in and that was how I first got introduced to like 400 blows and La Dolce Vita and things like that. Yeah. But it wasn't until a few years later that the movie business caught up to my generation and, and we, we sort of found our own voice and our own stars. Um, and, and the, the Charlton Heston's, you know, kind of fell by the wayside and, mm-hmm. And, you know, like Jack Nicholson and Five Easy Pieces came along um, and, you know, things like that. And, and that was more, you know, um, for us. I remember the one movie that really stood out. I went with a, several friends of mine just before we went away to college was um, it was a British film with Malcolm McDowell, uh, Lindsay Anderson film called If. If. Which I still love yes. today. And it was like a campus, you know, really revolutionary campus protest, uh, you know, kind of violent um, uprising. And it, it really spoke to us, but it was it was really rare at that time for any, you know, um, major um, Hollywood movies to speak to people our age. Um, they, they didn't get it. They just mm-hmm. didn't get it. The record business got it. You know, they got it right away. But Hollywood didn't. Plus, this, the studios were breaking apart and everything. Um, yeah. I mean, they did put some youthful programming on TV, but it was like, you know, the Mod Squad, the Monkeys. <laughs> Again, it was, here, let's throw some crap at these kids, you know, maybe they'll watch it. Some fluff, yeah. <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing that... Nothing yeah. real substance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, they still talk about The Graduate as being a groundbreaking, you know, like transitional film. But if you watch it, if you were my age, it's like, 
he goes up to Berkeley, you know, in search of Elaine and everybody on the Berkeley campus has really short hair and belongs to a fraternity. Yeah. <laughs> 1968, you know, that was like, it was a movie about the fifties, you know, it was, and, um, the, the one thing was that he had, he had gone against, you know, uh, Nichols had gone against the studio's preference. They wanted Redford to play the role. And, um, he wanted somebody a little more off beat because he thought he would get, you know, much greater traction out of the awkwardness of the sex scenes with Anne Bancroft. I mean, Robert Redford would not have been intimidated going to bed with Anne no. Bancroft. <laughs> he would have, he was a golden boy, you know, track star, but, um, Dustin Hoffman, different story. Definitely. Well, I've always enjoyed your stories about your two mentors, the Bills. The, so, my two Bills, yeah. yeah. Yes. How yeah. did you so, meet kind of, Bill Persky uh, and William Goldman, and what did you learn from them? Well, Billy, I knew from L.A., and um, he, um, I was, for a while, I was writing with a friend, and he liked, uh, he thought we were funny kids, you know, and he um, is a guy who, I mean, he worked on the original Dick Van Dyke show, which was one of the funniest shows ever made. And yes. he also did um, That Girl with Marla Thomas. And, Love um, that show, too. Yeah, he started directing um, also, and he was doing a movie of the week in New York. Don't kill me for saying this, but the title was called How to Pick Up Girls. And it was uh-huh. about young guys living in New York. It was based on a kind of a, like a pop self-help book at the time. And... Um, it had been written, the script had been written by two guys who had been like, you know, hadn't left Nate Nals in 40 years. I mean, it was <laughs> it was not two young guys. So um, I did a polish on it and and um, and um, it was on the air, got a TV credit and was a member of the Writers Guild, had an agent at ICM and got a pilot deal from Alan King, who had produced the film. And I was like 25, you know, and um wow. And then uh, did a, another movie of the week for Billy that that um, he wanted to direct that, that that the network passed on. But soon after that, Kate and Alley, which I part- loved growing up, oh, I actually have the DVD of the first season, oh, like somewhere around here. I found it at Half Price Books a few years ago, and I picked it up. I, was- I, I have a credit on the second episode. Um, okay, yes. I'm gonna have to rewatch that now. That's yeah. so cool. Uh, <laughs> It was um, originally called Two Mommies, and it was it was we did it in the old Ed Sullivan Theater, um, which was eventually years later a whole bunch of money was spent to renovate it for Letterman. But at that time, it had been vacant for years, and um, the the uh, meeting rooms and and um, common rooms and everything were downstairs, and it was like um, there were like puddles in these darkened hallways and, you know, plywood and naked light bulbs sizzling. And um, <laughs> it was just a total dump. It was just really, so welcome to show business. But we did get to go <laughs> into the dressing room that the Beatles used um, when they- For Ed Sullivan? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, so it was, that was pretty fun. Um, but um, that was what I learned It was really kind of an interesting, my career has been sort of an interesting evolution, you know, because I started out as a a journalist and critic. I have a journalism Mm -hmm. degree, as you mentioned, and it's like my my heroes as a critic when I I 
first started out were, were, were like Dorothy Parker and um, mm-hmm. a Texas journalist named Molly Ivins, who had also gone to Columbia. She was she was older than I was. Um, one of the great thrills of my life was I was on a book tour for like a fourth or fifth hoagie in Washington, D.C., and they had some pre-orders at the store, at the mystery bookstore, and one of them was um, Molly Ivins wanted me to sign one of oh, wow. for her and I, I said are you kidding me and, and she said <laughs> no why I said Molly Ivins reads my books and she said yeah she called and she wanted to make sure you signed it I was like oh my god yeah but um you you pick up a little from everybody who you know and I was in I took a year off and I was in living in Denmark and I was living in a big apartment house that had a bunch of rooms for rent. And the woman who lived in the room next to me, it turned out was a, a sitcom writer who was taking a year off and her name was Travis Silverman. And she wrote for the Mary Tyler Moore show. I was going to say the name was so familiar. She, she yes. Was really major talent, major, major. Yeah. Talent, Cause she was young. And, um, um, we would sit and talk about sitcoms endlessly. Um, I loved sitcoms. Um, me too. And, yeah. Uh, um, I mean, I've seen every of the original 39 Honeymooners like 40 times. I can recite. <laughs> uh, but when I went to work with Bill, what you don't know, it's funny because you watch so many shows or you watch mm-hmm. so many movies. What you don't really quite understand when you're making a transition from um, journalism to, to um, creating uh, the story is is actually the fundamentals of storytelling. Um, the basic, you know, introduction, complication, resolution, how to create a character, how to define a character by how they behave, not necessarily by what they say, but how they behave. There's a lot of real um, basics that I needed to learn and working, you know, uh on a sitcom as you know that was my i was you know sort of like a junior writer but i was on the staff and i and i did get a uh i don't know four episode credits i think in two seasons um very cool i wrote one that had dick cabot in it playing himself oh wow you learn things that i mean i do you know some mentoring to the writers guild we had a program a couple of years ago um, uh, with a bunch of there were like 500 submissions from um, young writers whose voices are not generally heard, minority voices, mm-hmm. handicapped voices, things like that. And and they sent us the scripts to read and, and give advice on and stuff. And you, you, you don't realize what you don't know. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's very hard to describe, but I, I learned it. I've been, you know, doing this practically 40 years now. And now I yeah. know things that I didn't know then in terms of how much more story is in a movie script than you think there is, you know, and mm-hmm. how much is, is eaten up and in one camera shot, you know, um, that uh, is 10 pages of dialogue, you know, um, you just throw and all it is is 10 seconds of screen time and it's go, okay, so where's the rest of the movie? You know, um, yeah. 
There's just there's there's a lot that you learn. And um, for me, writing sitcoms was a great um, kind of uh, education, especially from Billy. Um, we had a sad, you know, uh, event in his life in the last week because because his mentor was Carl Reiner. Uh, oh, ran um, the Dick Van Dyke show, played Alan Brady. Um and I, I once did an interview with Carl, and I said, I got to tell you before we get started that you are my sitcom grand mentor. And he said, what ah. you? And I said, Billy Persky is my mentor, and you are Billy Persky's mentor, so that makes you my grand mentor. So he said, well, you <laughs> writing articles. Why don't you move to Bel Air, buy a house with a pool, get divorced, live <laughs> with the pool, get married again, buy a house with a pool. Lose the house because Billy was famous for it. He'd been married like five times, and with Billy, oh, wow. he always yeah. the house. That was the thing. Um, but uh, he's still, you know, um, full of piss and vinegar. He's 85. He lives out on Shelter Island. He'd go to work in a second if somebody would hire him, you know. But nobody wants to work with anybody who's 85. Oh, I know. That's so bad. I'm glad that Billy Persky's still around, though. That's yeah, great. He's, we, we have lunch, like, every year. Um, he's, he's a great guy, great storyteller, and, and I love hearing, you know, the stories about He started out on the Steve Allen show, and before that, he used to write for nightclub comics and, you know, these model and nightclubs in Atlantic City and stuff. And, you know, he has, he has great stories, but... Um, you can only imagine, yeah. I, I learned the, you know, kind of the ABCs about how to structure a story, how to structure a script to the point that, you know, within, a, you know, um, a couple of years um, when, when I was working on other shows, I would be the one who would read the first draft submissions from other people and tell them what was wrong with the script and how it needed to be fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because you didn't get the, as we used to say in, in the newspaper trade, you buried the lead. You know, you didn't get to the point quick enough. You need, you know, gotcha. this information that's in the third scene you needs to be in the first scene. And, you know, um, you waste too much time with this. And, um, mm-hmm. You get to a certain point in that business. I can, you know, take a part and put a script back together again, you know, like blindfolded in 45 seconds. It's like, you know, um, and I got to a point with especially with half hour TV where it wasn't challenging enough anymore. I did an hour, some hour shows. I did a version of The Saint that that was filmed. For CBS, a revival of The Saint, worked with Bob Baker, the guy who had done The Saint with uh, Roger Moore. Um, and and I did an hour show with Fred Dreyer, which was a total nightmare. He was a really scary person to work for. But, oh, uh, no. <laughs> yeah. I, um, uh, we filmed it in Cabo San Lucas, and I, I was afraid I was going to get stranded in a Mexican jail and never be seen again. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, he's a really scary guy. But, um Yikes. Uh, uh, you know, again, mastering how to do a one-hour show. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm talking television of that era, um, 80s, 90s, where it was mostly network. Now, you know, it's a lot more freeform. And, you know, when you turn on a show that's made, you know, for um, Netflix or made for HBO, you don't quite know what you're going to get. (laughs) What you're going to get or where it's going to leave off 
or I mean, that's what I love about, you know, I mean, everything was so predictable. We mm-hmm. had you know, X number of acts. You had to uh, get um, script approval for your outline. And there was, you know, going to be basically two scenes to a, to a sitcom. It's going to be 22 pages long, you know, and, mm-hmm. and our show, there would, there would be like, you know, four or five acts and each would be a certain number of pages and each each act would have two or three scenes you would be allowed one exterior scene um the rest would have to be interior because it was all based on money and yeah um, it was very formulaic um and after a while i particularly when i was in my 20s and 30s was incredibly restless I, i was just uh, hyper and restless and, and wanted to do everything I could possibly. It was like I was in 31 flavors. You know, I, I wanted mm-hmm. give me that, give me that, give me that. You know, uh, newspapers make I was sometimes working on five things at once. I worked wow. today, seven days a week. All I ever wanted to do was work. I, I was incredibly excited. I had no social life, no sex life, no nothing, but I was happy <laughs> as a clam. You know, I'd get up at four in the morning in my unheated fifth floor garret and work on my novel for two hours. And then I would, you know, um, run out and do an interview with somebody. And I mean, I uh, was Did so you? fortunate because um, Scripps Howard gave me this job in New York. I was a Broadway critic, so I went to the theater every night, but also... Um, I used to do interviews with people who had written their memoirs and novelists and things like that. And I, I should also tell you, uh, I looked about 16. I was always baby faced. I'm still baby faced. Um, I mean, um, people think I, uh, I just went to a dermatologist before the pandemic to get checked over. And he asked me if I was over 50. And I said, kind of, uh, <laughs> card you're holding, you know, um, and um, I have that problem too. I get asked <laughs> if I'm like a student at ASU, and it's you like do, I'm 39. Yeah, very useful. Um, yeah, but I, always, I was getting carded in bars when I was like 30. Um, yeah. Um, but um, I actually had a chance, like when I was 20, 25, 26 years old, to spend two hours in a hotel room with John Houston, um, just oh talking gosh. about movies and talking about you know and Bogart and you know things like that and and, and Ilya Kazan um, and some you know great actors and also authors I, I inter- interviewed Stephen King I interviewed um, P. D. James Robert Stone um, some amazing people David Halberstam um, and the reason uh, the soaking uh, up all liked, that knowledge they, yeah publishers liked me because I've, I've learned this from being on the other side of the desk now. Um, I had no idea that I was 10 times more conscientious than the other reporters who did celebrity interviews. Uh, oh. First of all, I read the book, which most of them didn't. Yeah, <laughs> that's I, a good thing to do. Yeah, I, <laughs> I would actually read the book. Second yes. of all, there's a press kit and the press kit has a set of pre-written questions that are done by the publicity department. And when when you're an author like I am now, and somebody interviews me, I can tell when they're, they're just asking me. I can First of all, I can tell whether they've read the book. Second of all, they ask me the same questions in the same order. Um, yeah. They don't actually take the time to shape 
what kind of a story do I want to write? I'm going to be spending a couple of hours with John Houston. I'm an old movie fan. I, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I was weaned on, you know, um, the Maltese Falcon and, and Treasure of Sierra Madre when I was like, you know, 16. Um, what do I want to know? What do I want to know about the misfits? You know, um, yeah. what do I ask him, you know? And um, so, so, it, uh, and the same thing with, with Kazan, you know, it was just like, um, so many stories, I bet. Yeah, just, so many stories. And, and so, um, they, uh, Knopf, which was, you know, like the top publisher still is, yeah. um, their publicist always called me cause I worked for a syndicate too. It wasn't glamorous, but it got out to like millions of readers. Mm-hmm. So I, I just had a great, you know, I mean, sitting and talking to Maggie Smith, I mean, I mean, I mean, it was great. It was just great. Um, I, I had a great time. I asked him what I remember asking him what was Bogart. What was it like to be friends with Bogart and hang out with Bogart? What kind of person was he? You know, mm-hmm. and he said he said that Bogie had less use for a phony than any man I've ever met in my life. Oh, that just makes me like him so much more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and then I remember I asked him about the misfits working with. Marilyn and Monty, who were both in big trouble, and yeah, he said it was very, very difficult because they were both on a stairway to nowhere, and yeah, uh, and they were, you know, mm-hmm. um, she was impossible to, you know, get to focus on things. Yeah, it's so sad. And 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 um, Montgomery Clift was like just had a terrible drinking problem, mm-hmm. and um falling apart and and um but anyway i had a great time doing that i had a great time writing for magazines but i had a great time writing for tv i had a great mm-hmm. time writing movies movies are are a whole new adventure i did about yes. some of those got you know well paid i worked with some really good people i worked for gary marshall uh, oh so wrote, cool i wrote a really really funny um comedy about it, a, a hotshot young uh, college basketball player who has a really bad attitude and washes out of the nba and ends up in the italian league they called it the spaghetti league which was kind of a new phenomenon at the time and um he's a you know um fish out of water there he doesn't speak the language he's mm-hmm. from a small school in upstate new york and totally unsophisticated and it was a really really funny movie and um gary was going to direct because his two greatest passions in life were italy and basketball and we were all set to go uh they were going to you know open the production offices on monday and saturday night he got a call asking him if he would take over directing um a comedy a romantic comedy with julia roberts and richard Gere. Uh, Whoa. <laughs> called Pretty Woman, and yes. he yearned to be an A-list director, mm-hmm. and um, so that was the end of the project. Um, Bummer. And, and I had a similar experience that was actually even more painful. I worked for two Castle Rock, right? with Bill Goldman on, on a really terrific thriller called Slash. Okay. Uh, New York, we did seven drafts over the course of two years working for Rob, uh, Rob Reiner. Uh, and the people at Castle Rock, I mean, you couldn't ask for a more, you know, yeah. fantastic, you know, education. 
uh, or experience. And um, uh, they finally gave it a green light, $50 million, if either Michael Douglas or Robert De Niro said yes. And it went to their people on Friday. Monday, their people said no, and that was the end of the project. And it's like the, the business will break your heart. It is, but yeah. working with Goldman w- was a whole, you know, other, you know, experience because at that point in my career, I was in, I think I was in my early 40s, and at that point, I pretty much felt like I'm a mentor, and you know, I'm should be, you know, working with proteges. And yeah. I had the opportunity to actually be a protege again and <laughs> have a mentor. It's very rare to get a mentor at that age, at that stage of your life. I mean, I'd already, you know, written. Been doing that, yeah, for a long time. <laughs> an Edgar Award, I'd already, you know, been writing uh, movies, you know, for more than 10 years. And working with Bill, he was just a uh, like a little kid. You know, he was just all he he just loved movies, loved writing movies, loved basketball, and um, he was incredibly kind, incredibly generous, and um, was uh, the best diagnostician I've ever worked with in my life. He could tell you what was wrong with a scene in like 10 seconds, and and when we worked together, he was constantly getting um, rough cuts and scripts from studios saying, we'll give you $50,000 for one week's work if you'll tell us what's wrong with this movie, you know, and he would just read it and, and he would automatically know. He just had an, uh, a, a, an incredible instinct. I had been a fan of his novels growing up, Temple of Gold, Boys and Girls Together. They were, he, he was kind of his idol was Erwin Shaw, and um, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, there's, he had a picture in his den of standing with Erwin Shaw. He loved Erwin Shaw, and one of the world's worst, most horrible putdowns was it was Redford, whose career he made, and they had a horrible falling out. Redford mm-hmm. said basically everything Bill does is an homage to somebody else or something else, and he's not an original writer. Um, mm. they, they, like, came to blows over um, all the president's men. They, they had been best friends, and um, yeah, uh, it turned out that Redford, who was producing the movie, had um, Nora Ephron and Carl Bernstein writing another version of the script behind Bill's back. Um, I read about that, yes. found out about it. They were, I mean, their families went on vacations together and stuff, and mm-hmm. uh, he never spoke to them again. And um, oh and then to to rub salt in the wound, Bill won won an Oscar for the script, and mm-hmm. is credited, you know, with the line with several lines from that movie, you know, follow the money and and all that. Um, but Redford to this day will not go out of his uh, he will not miss an opportunity to badmouth Bill. Yep. Um, Bill, I have a book on Alan he, J. Pacula, and the whole chapter was pretty much Redford negating Goldman's contribution or right. script and yeah it was it was yeah. hard to read he he made Redford's career Redford was a lightweight blonde you know guy who'd been in you know a bunch of movies no one mm-hmm. thought he was a superstar or or any kind of a major star and mm-hmm. Bill and George Hills said he's the Sundance kid and the studio oh. said no way and so Bill said he is the Sundance kid and um, he fought and he fought and he fought. And he said, now, nah, you know, throw a stick on the beach at Malibu. You'll hit 100 guys just like him. And Bill said, no, this guy has something <laughs> special. And he made his career. And um, it's really so bad. Better. 
but he he was a guy who um, held a grudge. He he and his older brother James were um, fine and winner. Um, I think it was fine and winner. Um, they didn't speak, uh, and when when his brother died, um, I said, "I'm sorry to hear about your brother's death," and he, he said, "I'm not going to the funeral," which was like oh, wow. down the street from his apartment. You know, but, that's tough. Um, Yes, yeah, that's sad. But he said that the nicest person that he met and worked with and is in 30 years in the business was Paul Newman. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. yeah. He said mm-hmm. he was the absolute greatest guy and that he had no idea how good looking he was, even though you can't <laughs> believe. But he, he just, he had no idea how great he was. He had no idea how talented he was or anything. Mm-hmm. Incredibly modest and, and real. Stayed married to the same woman all those years. Stayed away from Holly. Yeah, um, he's marvelous. Yeah, he's he's one of my real idols. Uh, Me I too. Watch him in HUD or The Hustler, or Paris Blues, uh, even the even the Young Philadelphians, which is I'll admit is not a great movie. I I love that movie. I just love that movie. It's one of those like kind of like schlock B movies. Um, yeah, he's it, so good in it. It just great. makes it entertaining. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Robert Vaughn is great in it. Um, yes. It's just a really terrific uh, kind of like not good movie, um, but it's he to me was like a movie star. He and McQueen, I think, were my two favorite movie stars when I was growing up. I loved Steve McQueen. I still love Steve McQueen. Anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've probably seen The Magnificent Seven a hundred times. And, oh, it's so and good. Escape and uh, Bullet. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's a sequence in Bullet. Everybody always talks about the car chases, but for me. The, the scene on the airplane at the end where the killer has changed planes and, and he figures it out. Uh, he stops the plane from taxiing away mm-hmm. and to Rome. We know the killer is on the plane. He's, he's, we've seen him. He's sitting, you know, about 10 rows down next to the window. McQueen stops the plane, gets on board, climbs off, you know, gets on the plane. And Peter Yates puts a camera like six inches from those huge, amazing cat's eyes those predators eyes of his yeah the whole scene and this is the difference between writing a book and writing a movie the whole scene is him walking slowly down the aisle with his eyes flicking left to three seats on the left flicking right to three seats and we know in any minute he's gonna, yeah he's gonna see him but he's not gonna let on that he knows that he's the killer because once he does that you know the guy's gonna rabbit but it's all in mcqueen's eyes the, the he carries the whole film in his eyes and people always say what's the difference between writing a book and writing a movie um when you write a movie you write that but you realize that all of the dialogue and description that you've written is meaningless it's going to get thrown out because mm-hmm. all it is is the camera and the star's eyes there's nothing on paper you know yeah. uh, what is that? It's one sentence on paper. That's all it is. True. Well, I was going to ask you, because you have such a great knowledge of classic movies. Let's say that Turner Classic Movies asked you to program an evening's double or triple feature. What theme would you like to choose and which films would you show? Wow. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Well, I'm always... I, I'm always, you know, for noir, and and I, I, mm-hmm. I you know, um, I would definitely go with Out of the Past. I would definitely go with Double Indemnity. Off the top of my head, I, I would, I would really like 
to see them show some of the um, European noir that maybe doesn't. Yeah. Uh, like Wages of Fear, which I think is an amazing movie, um, and and Rafifi. I love Rafifi and yeah. Elevator to the Gallows and all of those. Um, yeah. And also some British films like um, like Bright and Rock. Um, yes. Um, films that were really really hard boiled and really cool, great acting. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I'd also like to see. What I was talking about before, you know, when I was growing up, I mean, Laurel and Hardy were like gods to us. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> especially if you were trying to um, play around a little bit with comic improv and stuff. I mean, Stan Laurel could spend five minutes going in and out of a door because he was supposed to pick up a, a woman for, for a date. He was very shy and he would walk mm-hmm. back take his hat off, put it on the hat rack, and then um, they'd get ready to leave, and he'd put his hat on, he'd start out the door, and he, he would keep losing his hat on the hat rack. He would forget he had either put it on or taken it off, but he would make it so seamless and and natural that um, you were just in stitches, you know? I mean, he was incredible. Um, I loved watching them. Um, and I love W.C. Fields and um, that stuff, like when I was in college, was extremely popular and has, for some reason has kind of fallen by the wayside. I mean, nobody was funnier than W.C. Fields, um, but you don't see too much W.C. Fields anymore. So I, I would love to see um, It's a Gift mm-hmm. and Can't Cheat an Honest Man. And yeah, I mean... And his shorts are, are great too. I, I guess those would probably be my two my two themes. Cool. Um, but part of me is is comedy, comedy, you know, complete. And part comedy. noir. <laughs> part, part of me is a crime writer. I write. I probably mm-hmm. killed. I've probably killed more than seventy five people in my career. I mean, I've killed <laughs> people in ways I've. I one sh- my favorite murder. People always ask me this: What is your favorite murder? My favorite murder is uh, one of the books I did. Hoagie books was took place on a sitcom. I used every experience I ever had. And ah, uh, which I one? Killed, I, I killed this. It was uh, the man who canceled himself. Uh, okay. I, I killed uh, a character by uh, hot wiring the urinal in his dressing room. So that <laughs> when he peed. It hit the metal, and he uh, clogged the toilet, and he had to reach for the handle. And as soon as his hand touched the handle, it was hot-wired, and he got lit up like a Christmas tree. So Um, you used the comedy gag in there and the crime. I I can see that. Very cool. Yeah. 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 So I I am kind of a weird mix. The mystery community has never quite known what what to make to me. I've been at it long enough that I've been finally being sort of in the last few years, taken more seriously than I was. I was taken. I was considered early in my career a writer of comic mysteries, but my mysteries are actually pretty serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of them as serious. It's just that there's, you know, comedy, and and my hero is is an unusual hero in that he is a a novelist, and mm-hmm. um, also he, his partner is. It, is a basset hound. Yes, Lulu. Lulu, uh, Who sort of overshadows him. And, you know, when I 
stopped doing the series, I got an endless amount of email. Uh, when is Lulu coming back? Not when is Hoagie coming back? When uh-huh. is coming back? But um, I, I mean, I, I've had a lot of fun. I mean, you know, it's just been great. I just, you know, have had a chance to do so many things that I, you know. Fascinating career. For being, sure. Being a kid, you know, 10 years old in L.A., you know, sitting and watching, you know, Route 66 or, or whatever, you know, um, dreaming, you know, or the Twilight Zone or something like that, dreaming that someday, you know, I'd be able to get a chance to, you know, do some of this stuff. And like when I went to journalism school, I just we just had our 45th reunion. It was a virtual reunion. Uh, mm-hmm. And everybody submitted their bios. And it's like a lot of people like stayed in journalism and, you know, Mm-hmm. That was what they wanted to do. That was what they wanted it to be. You know, you explored like, everything. I love that. You know, that was their ultimate goal. You know, and it was like, no, I'm not ready to get off the train yet. I want to keep going to another stop. You know, and then mm-hmm. I want to keep going after this. You know, my ultimate goal, it turned out, was I really wanted to be a novelist. I, I, I sort of wasn't sure, you know, when I was 16 or 18 years old, you know, what my ultimate dream goal in life was. But the weird thing was that I didn't know I was going to become a mystery writer because, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, just, I just didn't. I mean, I, I read Sherlock Holmes and the Hardy Boys, but, you know, I mean, I had a stack next to my bed of uh, this high, you know, yay high. It was higher than the bed. And one of them <laughs> was my Hardy Boy novels and the other was all of my issues of Mad Magazine. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much me in a nutshell, you know. I'm yeah, st- I, I'm still incredibly immature and and juvenile, oh. um, and uh, but you know, life hands you a lot, and by the time yeah. you get your sixties and you know lose your parents, lose friends, mm-hmm. um, get beaten around a lot, and have a lot of success and a lot of failure, um, you just get a lot more depth. You know, and mm-hmm. um, I was really surprised when I resumed the Hoagie series. I had ended it in 97 and I resumed it uh, three years ago because an editor at Morrow said that it had been his favorite series and he would give anything if I would re- renew, you know, redo it. Very cool. Which I agreed to do only because they said I could do the Miss Period novels and stuff in the early 90s. Uh, I don't think, you know, um, a celebrity ghostwriter, celebrity secrets are possible anymore with the Internet. No. Um, Google, TMZ, you know, I mean, there are no secrets anymore. People have camera phones, you know. I mean, I didn't think the character would work in the modern world. Um, but it's been really fun writing 1992, 1993, because it, it, I'm still wearing some of the same clothes. I mean, it, it's just... <laughs> long ago it, it seems like ancient history a lot of my last editor hadn't been born when you know uh oh, wow. first book came out you know um she was like 26 or something like that um but um so uh yeah it's been it's been really a lot of fun and um i don't know what i do without turner classics i i guess i'd probably just get rid of my tv i don't know i don't know what i do oh, i know Maybe. it's the best channel for sure well, well, old movies are, are like my life, you know. Um, yep. I, the only thing I don't like are, are uh, well, it's a whole other conversation. It's like, which stars who are big stars do you hate, you know? Mm-hmm. Is there somebody 
is that you don't like, you have like an instinctive thing about, like, I can't stand Danny Kay. Um, oh, yeah. I'm not a huge Danny Kay fan. Yeah. No. And I, I, I don't like Stuart Granger. Stuart Granger is in a movie. I won't watch it. I mean, I'll watch it. Oh, really? Okay. Day. Yeah. Um, if Robert Taylor is in a movie, I won't watch it. Um, Whoa. Right. Okay. Uh, um, <laughs> this will, this, uh, a lot of people get mad at me for this one, but I don't like Doris Day. I never liked Doris Day. Um, <laughs> um, and I don't like, I, I'm not a big musical fan, although if it's got Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers in it, or it's, you know, the MGM musicals from the early fifties, you know, mm-hmm. um, with Gene Kelly or, or, you know, or the band bandwagon or something like that, I'll watch those, but an average musical, I can't watch. I can watch an average crime film or an average Western. I love Westerns. Um, Me too. Yep. But musicals, not so much. Oh, bummer. Yeah. If it's got Dan Daly as the lead, forget it. If it's got who? Dan Dan Daly. Daly. Ah, okay. Well, I was going to ask last question. So I know you're working on the the novel and you're editing it. Can you give us any sneak preview about what we can expect from Hoagie and Lulu and the newest adventure? It's called um, The Man Who Wasn't All There. And um, he's been <laughs> he uh, and Marilee, his ex-wife, who's a movie star, are slowly getting back together again. She's filming a remake of... Um, the Sun Also Rises in uh, in Hungary, which is, passes for Paris. Um, and um, she says, why don't you use, it's, it's fall, why don't you use um, my country house while I'm gone uh, to work on your book if you want. Because he's, he's rolling again. He's writing a book about the punk era in New York in the 70s, which was when he was kind of like a wild kid with a motorcycle. You know, <laughs> um, and... Um, he goes up there and um, he uh, sort of gets caught in this web uh, of this psycho who um, uh, is, is a crazy billionaire uh, who lives in the... Hey, that's timely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, lives in the mountains and um, doesn't interact with other people, but is a stalker mm. uh, and um, a psychotic. Um, and uh, it's kind of scary, actually. Yikes. Uh, um, and um, I had I, I had a pretty good time writing it, but it is pretty scary. Um, it sounds like an interesting adventure. Yeah, I'm excited for it. He almost gets killed, actually. Lulu, oh Lulu, wow! Yeah, Lulu actually has to save his life, which, which uh, she she's will, ready to do that. Yeah, she's ready in a second. Yeah. Yes. Lulu is the best. Well, I want to thank you so much, David, for yeah, we could for talk for four hours probably. I know this was so much fun. I really enjoyed this. Me too. Thank you for having me. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd, and this is Watch with Jen and Friends.